0: Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. On today's episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I'm going to be speaking with noted paleoanthropologist Lee Berger, author of the new book Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. And he's also featured in the Netflix documentary Unknown. Cave of Bones. Let's get right to the interview. Hi, Lee. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here. To start off uh, just really generally, uh, how should listeners understand the mission and the challenges of paleoanthropology?
4: So paleoanthropology is in its loosest definition the search for understanding human origins, but it's a little broader than that. It's also Hominin origins, and and the reason I make that distinction is that uh, we humans tend to self-center everything around ourselves, um, and and hominins are, are are bipedal apes that are part of uh, our journey, but they're not all our direct ancestors, if you will. There's been a mass, an almost braided stream of of ancient relatives that walked on two legs that are closer related to us than chimpanzees and gorillas are. So there, if you imagine evolution of, of sort of coming from a last common ancestor, uh, gorillas broke off first, then chimpanzees, bonobos break off. And all the rest of that story between us and, and that moment are the hominins as we evolved bipedalism and special adaptations. We also, though, study not only the physical morphology, the kind of the way that evolution happens, we study the culture of these ancient species. And that's going to be, I think, particularly important to these most recent discoveries.
1: Now, you were previously the Philip Tobias Chair in Paleoanthropology at the University of Edvardesrand. I know you've taken on some new titles recently. What is your role now with National Geographic,
4: and how does all of
1: this factor into your other positions and your work?
4: Right. So I am an explorer in residence is my primary job at National Geographic Society. I'm also a senior Carnegie Science Fellow. That's a very recent appointment as I have joined that organization largely to push the sort of hard sciences in our field and the relationship between that remarkable uh, group of scientists and organization. I still maintain a uh, a position at Vits as an honorary professor, and I'm director of the Center for the Exploration of the Deep Human Journey. So all of those intersect with each other. I run a a very large science program uh, that has uh, a sort of collaborative collegial group of scientists from around the world of over 160 at this time. It's growing almost on a daily basis, uh, is is that. So it's a very large science program. Some of those are based in the sort of traditional university setting. Others of them are uh, based in sort of institutional things like Carnegie or museums.
1: Now, the book is Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. And then, of course, we also have the Netflix documentary Unknown Cave of Bones. They take readers and viewers, to a particular cave system in South Africa. Can you tell us about the Rising Star Cave Complex?
4: So the Rising Star Cave Complex came deeply into my life uh, in 2013. I'd known about it before then. Um, It was a very well-known system of caves where amateur cavers, and I'd even caved in in the 1990s just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. Imagine, if you will, a a huge cave network of subterranean system, uh, almost four kilometers long. So what is that, two and a half miles or so of, of underground passages networks Small and somewhat larger cave systems that goes down maybe a, a 200 feet or so before you you hit groundwater. Um, but it's it's like a it's it's hard to describe for people who tend to think of like the big mammoth cave systems. Mm-hmm. It's a latticework cave, so it's like skyscrapers that that are buried in the ground with different floors, and you can move and traverse up and down these. And it can be impossibly difficult. And so both the book and 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 the Netflix documentary followed us over a period of almost a year as we uh, were testing the idea of whether we had discovered burials um, in a non-human species. And that is a species called Homo naledi, which is a very small-brained hominin. It's a, a brain slightly larger than a chimpanzee, but it was a biped. It walked on two legs uh, and existed sort of out of time and place. It, if we looked at a hominin like that, we would normally think, "Ah, oh, it's 2 million, million, years old, based on its entire anatomy. It turned out that Homo naledi is much younger than that, something like 240,000 to 330,000 years before present. So in finding these possible burials, and, and, and we go through that sort of period of analysis and looking at in this deep, dark chamber, almost 350 feet back into a system, um, we knew it was going to be one of the most controversial things ever said. Because until that moment of seeing those, the, the idea was that really only humans and things very much like humans, like Neanderthals, bury their dead. It was our gig, one of the last things we had that separated ourselves from from the animal kingdom and animal behavior. And so uh, both the the, uh, Netflix show and the book carry us through that period and then to what I kind of refer to as 72 hours of remarkable discovery, where uh, I ended up losing about 55 pounds and Uh, got down into this incredibly difficult to get to space where only 46 people had been before, almost died in the process of doing that. I needed answers to some questions before we published that burial paper that really I kind of only had the broad experience to answer. And it was at that point that I discovered uh, etchings on the wall, engravings on the wall, and uh, evidence of fire on the roof. And then That kind of broke everything free because we suddenly realized there was evidence of fire everywhere, and so now we're at this this kind of moment where my colleagues and I and uh, have announced to the world that uh, we believe we have discovered the first non-human species culture in history. Yes, having
1: having watched the documentary and read the book, this is all this is this is just really mind blowing. Uh, I'm not even sure of which direction to start with first. Like just the the sheer. Uh, challenges of the cave system, or just how um, potentially profound the discoveries are i guess I guess maybe starting with the setting a little bit before you even ventured down there um, to the main chamber, how did you go about carrying out these explorations, uh, like with the command center and, and right. finding the right people to send down there
4: so so when I was first shown. Where this material was. I, I sent my then 15 year old, very skinny son down there to verify that it was real. And I was shown by these two amateur cavers that I had enlisted where this was. I knew I would never get into that space. I, you know, if you imagine this vertical squeeze that, that moves in various directions, it squeezes down to seven and a half inches in places. I, my, my, my physique, I used to choke my ego would never fit, much less my <laughs> physique. Um, I designed a, a, a system to, to work in the space um, based on I, – I, I've been very close friends with both James Cameron and uh, Bob Ballard and have been admirers mm-hmm. of the way they've handled their expeditions which include, you know, sort of deep sea uh, work where you can't often go to these places. Now, James did, of course, but, and, and so is Bob, but you can't often go to these places. So they use remote operation. They use, you know, tethered operations and, and, uh, and, and using remote operated vehicles. And so I designed a system where I could be in that kind of command center. It's also based loosely on NASA as well. And, and then I, I, found my own remote operated people, which uh, I put a Facebook ad out and, uh, went, you know, looking for skinny scientists that had uh, skills to climb and cave and work in extreme environments. And I, I selected six just remarkable scientists It just happened to be women. And that journey has continued, and we've constantly advanced the technology. We have Wi-Fi in the cave now; it's a lot more sophisticated. But we still have all that hard wiring uh, that goes in there. And, and I sit at the top with other scientists, and we monitor and watch over their shoulders, and and help them excavate. The few people that could get into that space, it, it was it was a lot of fun, very dramatic. Um, I'll admit, at times, frustrating that you know. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be there and and they would bring each piece out after you know carefully excavating it documenting it and then it would become part of a broader study um, it it's an extreme environment it's an environment that can kill you and uh, it's uh, and and I think it's probably pretty unique amongst the world's you know search for human origins a pretty unique environment to actually be physically working and and Constantly, constantly adapting and changing. I mean, uh, the way you do it. I think you can actually see that probably better in the book than the documentary, where you actually feel as we keep adapting things along the way, mm-hmm. trying to improvise and make it better as we we hit roadblocks.
1: Yeah, I, th- I found both the, the documentary and the book uh, were were were, uh, were highly um, illustrative in different ways. I mean, obviously, we're getting some of the actual footage. In, in the documentary, but you have some, some wonderful illustrations in the book that you know, just lay out exactly how the cave system is oriented. And then your descriptions of, of, of when you actually go down and then have to ascend back up. That was, some of that was just very harrowing to read. <sighs>
4: It gives me PTSD even reading that, and I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it was also tough to watch that on on the Netflix doc movie. You can uh, you can imagine because the um, for for your listeners, what what ultimately happened was after deciding that I we couldn't go forward with the barrel publication until we sort of sorted out a few critical questions. Um, I decided to make the attempt. In you know, turning fifty-seven, wasn't gonna be many times I was gonna be able to uh, attempt an extreme uh, journey like this. And so I lost the weight, got in there. It I I knew it was going to be terrible. I because I've told the world how terrible it is. I had no idea how awful it was, and it was a very strange experience. You know, I've been an explorer all my life, and. I've been in life and death situations several times but this was different because I was having to make conscious choices to push beyond places that I really did know deep in my mind I might not be able to get back out of and those are those are hard you you learn a lot about yourself in in those sort of moments when you make a choice like that and and pass through it it, it going down was was awful coming up was the most terrible and wonderful thing in my whole life, you know, and I had to, I had to make a decision, you know, I I tried to remove a body part, (laughs) you know, because I was stuck. Mm -hmm. And, and I'd never been in that situation before, you know, I'd never been in the kind of situation where you have to make a deeply, a a decision to try and hurt yourself to get out of something. Mm -hmm. And, um, you learn, you learn a lot about yourself in that situation too. But, um, I obviously I'm here now. I obviously did get out, um, but it's about as close to not surviving an event as I've ever been.
1: Like even the the names of sort of the three phases to get down to that main chamber, uh, it, it, it implies this kind of mythic journey. You have like the Superman crawl, which already sounds harrowing. Uh, you go up the dragon's back, which sounds very mythic. But then the shoot, right? The shoot is the real choke point here.
4: That's right. So, you know, Superman's Crawl, by the way, is just named because uh, you you had to extend one arm in the kind of flying Superman pose to, to fit through it. Most people did. And there was this awful rock in the middle of it that you had to crawl over. And then you enter this giant, beautiful chamber, dragon's back and up this jagged uh, series of rocks. It's almost 40 feet tall, um, which if you fall off, you die, you know, kind of thing. And then you get to the top. And you stare down into into this crevasse, into this labyrinth of of narrow squeezes and things, and you know, you slide in there and 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 down you go in a place that there's no point in it that rocks aren't pressing on both sides of your chest, almost no point in it that you can maneuver your head anywhere but down and usually at an angle because it's just narrow enough to and and just wide enough to you know a helmet to fit um it's tough it's 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 a hard space but it is you know while i was in there too though you can actually see that homo naledi who was thinner than we were who had a smaller head than we were who had more powerful uh hands grasping hands and and powerful shoulders would have moved through there very different. We're just a bunch of big clumsy apes in a space <laughs> we're not supposed to be. And 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 they would have, I think, moved through there very, very differently.
1: We we think they are they would have been arboreal or more arboreal
4: than, than us, right? So I, careful about arboreal. Better okay. climbers. Arboreal means trees. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, I think they, they could have done very well in trees, obviously, and almost certainly climbed them. But I think they were very good rock climbers, too. Okay. Um, and they have these curved fingers and these powerful joints, and they're very light in build. So I think they would have been very, very good rock climbers.
1: Yeah, you, I, I love one of the parts in the book where you're, you're, you're talking about having to navigate the chute and you're imagining them moving uh, rather effortlessly through that same space. Uh,
4: yeah, it, it, you know, I was, when I was, I had a lot of time in that space, uh, <laughs> a lot more time than I'd like to think about. And, you know, part of what I was doing there was also looking around and seeing the space in a very different way. When, when the first explorers had gone in there, um, the space is so narrow that you really can't get cameras in there to give any reflection about what it is. We can't get basic measuring tools, or we couldn't. We now have done that. And so it took on this sort of mythical thing of the shoot that mm-hmm. you talk about and actually was even drawn by some of our, in our early scientific papers as a tube, you know, this vertical tube from one place to the other, and it's not at all. It turns out it's a labyrinth, and I'm not sure how that sort of mythology got stuck even into the science. Um, we're now rewriting that, but that's why I call it the shoot labyrinth now. It's not a, a, it's not a uniform pipe. Why is all this so important? Because this is one of the hardest things that people have to understand why this place is special and why would Naledi go to all that effort just to put its dead in there. It's so many people who <laughs> who it, it's very interesting as people talk to me about this. They go, but why would they do that? And, you know, I had a very interesting experience. I was in London recently and I was talking to someone about this and we were sitting up on one of those high buildings in central London. The cathedral was right, right behind it and they, they, their back was to the cathedral and I was looking at them and they said, you know, why would anyone, I just can't understand why they would go to such effort for their dead. And I went. You know, I just gestured with my hand out the window to this gigantic cathedral that Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people had built, all as a tribute to death. And, you know, we go to huge, huge efforts to deal with that. We build ossuaries, We build catacombs under... Major cities, we build pyramids, we build cathedrals. we dig holes six feet in the ground when there's no need to and put bodies in them. And yet here we sit as humans go, but why would someone go to that extent for their loved ones? And the answer is because they did, even though they didn't have our brain, even though they didn't uh, you know they aren't us, they clearly carried those same emotions and feelings about death. And, and, and perhaps the afterlife um, and things like that, but certainly the emotions of death and love to, to make sure that their kin did not undergo the often horrific processes that occur to things that are just left to the decay process or in Africa, the process of scavenging that goes on outside, which is not particularly pleasant. Whatever was their motivation, They did that thing.
1: Now, as you discussed, there are, of course, other ways that bones can find their way into caves and cave systems. How how do we eliminate such possibilities as predators bringing bones down or water washing
4: them down into the complex? So that's just from a process of scientific analysis and also a process of elimination. If carnivores or scavengers are dealing with the dead, then they leave marks on them. Uh, they leave tooth marks, scratch marks. They dismember. They're doing it, almost certainly to eat the bodies. You know, because they're not collecting humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's our, our hominins, and so that that leaves very characteristic damage. So that doesn't exist on this very very large sample of, of Homo naledi, and we're, we're we're over thirty individuals. Remember, and and lo- thousands of bones. So uh, there's no evidence of that. So you can eliminate scavengers and predators. Um, Then you get to the point of, well, how do you know they just all didn't go down there and die? So the first part of that was, well, if they did, only one species did that. That is, they went again and again, and they did it over time. We can see that there are events imposed on events, imposed on events. So there's time involved in the accumulation. So that would be odd. It wouldn't be impossible. But that was actually, for the first several years, our initial hypothesis that they were perhaps being brought there and just left there. It was only when we then began to see that the floor was actually not a bone bed. It was actually a sterile floor that then was interrupted by a pit or hole dug into the floor it, that material was removed, disrupting part of the sedimentary layers in the floor. A fleshed body was put in. And the reason we know that is that parts of the bodies are articulated and you can see how the body de- it, it compressed itself in the sediments as it, as it, as it deteriorated, as the spaces uh, decayed within it. And then that body was covered with dirt, the same dirt from the hole. We can see the mixed up sedimentary layers. and and then the body went underwent natural collapse and decay and the and the and the material sediment. And we can show all that. You can show that through the analysis of the sedimentology and the structure. Some people I know don't like that. Um, and, and one of the reasons is that simply we consider calling that a grave or a burial uh, a human thing. And so, you know, if you don't want to call it a grave, then it is a hole dug into the floor with a body in it covered with dirt. <laughs> you can call that what you want, but the implication is, is that they did that. Oh, and, oh, sorry, by the way, sorry. Uh, you asked about water. Water leaves very characteristic geological signatures. Um, when water moves sediment, uh, anyone who's been to a stream can see what happens when when water moves. Sediment. You get sorting, you get different size rocks and pebbles and things. So there's no sign of that. There's no significant water movement of anything in that cave system.
1: Now, in in terms of them bringing uh, the dead down uh, through the cave system to this uh, this chamber. Um, It's thought then that they would have had fire. Uh, They would have had some sort of light.
4: So we can see evidence of fire on the roof of that chamber. There's soot blackened into the uh, flowstones that have grown over it. In fact, while I was in the chamber, my colleague, Dr. Kenelway Moliopane, was in Dragon's Back doing an excavation and discovered at the same moment I was in there, a hearth. She uncovered a hearth where they had been cooking animal remains, in the adjacent chamber. Now, that's that's kind of cool um, because there are no animal remains in the Dinaletti chamber where the burials are. Mm-hmm. There are animal remains in the Dragon's Back chamber, but there are no Dinaletti remains in the Dragon's Back chamber. So you've got this, this what appears to be, two differential uses of space. One where they cooked animal remains, the other where they buried their dead. Wow. Now,
1: um Coming back to this this crosshatch, tell tell us about this crosshatch you discovered, and uh, I mean, and there are so many additional (laughs) like the similarities to other marks that have been discovered. Like, what are we to make of all of this?
4: So, when I got into the cave, I I had one of these, and it's worth telling that moment again, because its it, it was a really interesting moment. Um, I, w- I decided I was not going to take any digital images or pictures, because I've been watching this thing through a digital screen for seven years. And so I, I decided to narrate it, to just talk. And if you watch the Netflix documentary, you'll actually see me talking into a cell phone as as I narrate, because I, I, I think that sometimes you see things better when you're forced to storytell as you mm-hmm. as you as you explain things. And I was narrating the space and it was clear to me almost immediately that that my explorers and our team our colleagues had missed things. And one was space had been altered. You could actually see where things like flowstones, that's a, a layer of lime, like a rock, had been broken and moved uphill. And so it, it was very clear to me that that we had misunderstood that they had interacted with this space. And as I was narrating that, there's this passageway that runs from where we land, just after the Chute Labyrinth, where we land called the Hill antechamber. There's a, a, a like a doorway that goes between there and the next chamber, which is Dinaletti Chamber, another burial chamber. And as I looked at that doorway, you can hear me say, wow, it looks like a door. It's smaller than I, and then you hear me pause because I, I'm an archaeologist. You know, I spent my life around doorways, and what we humans put around doorways always is some meaning signs. We tell you what's on the other side of the doorway, or who's behind the doorway, or all the or, or exit or bathroom here or whatever the signal is. And I saw these non-natural. Etchings in the wall. I couldn't believe it. Um, squares, rec- you know, rectangles, triangles, equal signs, crosses, right side up and upside down. Mm-hmm. And there was even this sort of fish-shaped thing that uh, you know that may not be what their intent of it was, but it looks like a fish-shaped thing uh, with an X in it, and and it appears to have been covered with some substance. And I could not believe what I was looking at. And uh, my explorers had walked right by that. and that's largely because pathfinder syndrome you know once people have been in a space they develop a sort of backyard syndrome it becomes too familiar and you quit looking at the space around you because you know that it's been seen
0: Mm
4: -hmm. uh you know do that experiment at home where you you know if you right now draw your own kitchen um from memory and then draw a place that you've just entered the place you've just entered you'll draw better than your kitchen because you've you've amalgamated your kitchen into a safe environment. And you'll be surprised how poorly you you actually do that, that thing. And so I saw that and I turned on a black light. I always carry a UV light with me because many minerals, fluorescent caves, and I had this hallucination. I had this uh, a, a optical light shift as they float. You've seen like Queen's Gambit or something where you see the chess mm-hmm. pieces move and in, in the air above, or, or our beautiful mind and the equations come, and um, that happened to me. Uh, and scientifically, I know it happened, you know, because I created an optical light shift, like you do when you look in your rearview mirror at night, and you've ever noticed how the headlights float away from the the light of the mm-hmm. headlights. That's a that's a, a neural processing thing that's going on. Uh, in your brain, and so I know why it happened, but it it, it freaked me out completely uh, as, as it happened. I had to shut the light off, and I was embarrassed <laughs> about it. Um, and because it it you know they moved, and and then and then later found the hashtag on the way out. Um, which is it's a it's a cross hatch or that, and it has all these little pounding marks in it, where it looks like it's been pounded hundreds and hundreds of times. You can see the little pitting, and you can see those in the illustration in the book. All these hundreds of little pits that are, are are done. You know, and then they share these similarities. You know, I we were having a beer after I got out of it, and I. Took one one cell phone picture while I was down there. And that was of this crosshatch. And I showed it to John Hawkes and Augustine Fuentes. And I just turned it and immediately Augustine leapt up and said, I need my car keys. And he ran away. And I was like, what? And John (laughs) Hawks started looking like a a teenager on his cell phone. And I'm like holding this. And I like, you know, I almost died to get this picture at least. (laughs) And both of them turned around with their phones simultaneously and showed me the Gibraltar Gorham's cave crosshatch etching that had been done by a Neanderthal 60,000 years ago. And it's, it's the same. And I remember that moment so vividly because when John, I looked at John's, I thought, why is he Photoshopping the crosshatch? I just took and making it blue. And then I realized he doesn't have the picture. I'm the only one with the picture. Mm -hmm. And, And then, you know, the remarkable thing was these are two people, two of the few people in the entire planet who'd physically seen that. And so their mind immediately went to that. And of course, there are also similarities with uh, the oldest, uh, the oldest uh, geometric engravings from places like Blombos that are attributed to Homo sapiens at 78,000 years. Why is that? That's something that we're working on right now. We've assembled a team of neuroscientists, uh, people who study geometric rock art, artists. Um, I suspect it's because it's part of the shared mind of our deep ancestry. And that I suspect that those shared symbols, which by the way, are all very familiar to us today. They're the symbols we use for mathematics, music, these type of things. Um, And I suspect that they may have something to do with the way we formulate math, uh, the way we formulate language in in sort of a symbolic way inside of our head. And I think it comes from very deep time. I think that's the only way to really explain how they're shared between three species that really have almost no connection to each other at those temporal periods. And 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 also, I think, you know, we kind of knew that must be true the way geometric uh, rock art around the world all looks the same. And there clearly something inside of us And there was something in Naledi, and there's something in Neanderthals. Uh, So it's kind of cool to think maybe as this science goes on that what those panels inside of that, those burial chambers really are is the Rosetta Stone to the mind. And maybe we can begin to unlock that. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, just looking at like the comparison, I guess, like you can imagine that the, the the simplest way of looking at it would be like okay i i make right angles that that don't occur in that na- in nature that frequently and this kind of marks this as a a place where i have you know Im- impressed my will but then there's there seems to be so much else going on with these markings in addition to that
4: absolutely and i i think that part of the fun is that you know we've never really had markings from another species to compare to, that's always, you know, even the Neanderthal ones, one, it's a singular event, and two, mm-hmm. although there is now beginning to emerge some other rock art by Neanderthals, um, but they have a big brain. You know, they have this gigantic, huge brain, and 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 so they're kind of us. Uh, this is by something that doesn't have our brain. And so I think part of the, the real excitement going forward is going to be, what do they mean? Can we ever know what they mean? You know, I have hope with things like neural imaging and, you know, you've seen some of these experiments where they can actually visualize what the brain is seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I, I think that, you know, a friend of mine, Brian Murarescu, who wrote The Immortality Key, uh, when I showed him some of the images, he was just happened to be in London. He'd just come out of this experiment where he was watching people be, given psychedelics. And mm-hmm. and then they were asked to draw what they're seeing. And they draw those same images. Mm. You know, there's something there. Uh, and maybe this will be what we need to break through that.
3: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History class.
1: Now, you talk about the experience of being in, the, in that that cave, and this this is obviously like a, a novel environment for you. And I guess, uh, it would, pardon the pun, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but it it would have also been a novel environment for for the Homo uh, naledi as well, right? Do you do you feel like there is, and maybe this is just stretching too far? Is there any kind of you think there's any kind of like kinship between like the way you interpret such an environment, how your senses adapt to such an environment and what they might have experienced?
4: You know, I speak about, I think, the experience of being in caves a lot in the book. Um, and, you know, caves caves are not natural to humans. They're not our space. Even though we use the term like caveman all the time, the evidence that humans go deep into cave systems is, is a very, very recent phenomenon, by and large. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but we don't like to move beyond the twilight zone, you know, where there's still light filtering in. We, we, we just it's just not our space. Naledi clearly was much more comfortable uh, in those spaces. Um, having said that, when you're in those spaces and, you know, your whole focus narrows down to artificial lighting and uh You you lose a sense of of sound because sound isn't very important to you in those spaces, and so you you lose that, but your sense of touch is increased and these things. And and you start seeing these spaces and things in these artificial lights – and fire, by the way, is artificial light, of course – they do have an effect on you. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you think about the spaces that, that humans term as symbolic or sacred or whatever, we're often kind of replicating that cathedral like ceilings, the, the idea of, of, of disassociation of places that are, are, are natural to you. We tend to lower light levels, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and change the way that, that your eye is perceiving things. And, you know, and flame is particularly good at that because it can add motion. And it can add, it can add uh, the the perception of movement in in spaces like this. And so, so you know, I, I think that they are powerful spaces. Um, I don't want you know. I'm a scientist. So I'm trying to not go there, but it uh, they do affect you um, when you're when you're in these spaces, and particularly when you understand that you know, as as I guess I did very deeply that you know they chose this space. And they chose this space for their dead. And you'd have to have a pretty cold heart for that not to affect you when you're in a space mm-hmm. like that. So
1: is it it's possible then that that what we're seeing, it was certainly is a ritual behavior, but then is it the sort of thing that, it, at least broadly speaking, like over time that ritual takes on other meanings and maybe like religious ideas emerge out of that?
4: I, I, I've got to be very careful because, you know, they're, thousands of colleagues with daggers on when you <laughs> use the word ritual loosely or what it has, because mm. these have human meaning. Mm. And, and you know, we're dealing with a non-human, at least at the grade level of, 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 of anatomy and you're dealing with a non-human. So um, where this takes you, I don't know. I think that's going to be part of the next years and decades excitement. Um, we're going to go there. I mean, they have use this entire subterranean space. They have altered it. We don't have evidence that they're living there. What they appear to be doing is interacting with at least, at least the deeper spaces in 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 these ways. And, you know, I have some colleagues who say that it must be spirituality and religion. You know, it's a form of, of religion. I, I I don't think we can be there yet, but, you know, the fact is, is that the last couple of decades have shown us the arrogance of human exceptionalism and and you know as we've begun to actually more openly study animal behavior we understand now of course that cetaceans have culture elephants have culture that other primates have cultures that chimps and gorillas certainly have cultures and yet we had eliminated that from things that are closer to us, like Homo naledi. And I think we have to start the field over in some ways. I think we have to start again. I mean, we had approached everything as if the null hypothesis of finding a dead hominin body was natural. You had to explain it naturally, as opposed to the null hypothesis being cultural. And I think that was a mistake. I think it was a a mistake. And I think a. Big thing that's going to come out of this moment in history is, is a recognition that we had made an error of the science. We had deculturized things that clearly must have had culture. And in doing that, we weren't seeing their cultures. And I will bet you that what will flow out of this discovery and, and this moment um, is, is, is a new acceptance of these ancient human relatives being cultural beings, and I think that's really exciting, because that will lead us into not missing things in the way we have missed things before.
1: Absolutely. Now, now coming back to the the book, particularly uh, and specifically, uh, you, you've you've authored other other books before. What really propelled this book into being? What what led you to, to, to write? And what did you really want to get out there with Cave of Bones?
4: So this book started as a completely different book. <laughs> it <laughs> literally started as a follow-up, a five-year follow-up to Almost Human, um, which was the first book on, on the discovery of Homo Naledi. And, and what that meant. And it was meant to take all of the research that had been done and kind of synthesize it to where we were. And we were in a very strange place when I began uh, developing uh, the concept of this book with my co-author, John Hawks. And that is, we had one of the best known hominin species ever discovered, but all we had were its bones. And so it was meant to be this kind of journey around The state of where we were and ending with this sort of, but we need more. And then the burials were discovered. And that became the center of the book. Um, Because, you know, I literally thought when those burials, when we recognized that those were holes in the ground dug with bodies in them covered by dirt from the hole, um, I thought that was going to be the biggest discovery of my life. You know, here we were, you know, we're right into now this sacred space of humanity, Um, you know, burial of the dead and all the things you talked about that spill out of that self-recognition of mortality, possibly spirituality, all those things fall deeply from that. (laughs) And then I got in the chamber and saw the symbols and you're like, wow. The fire, funny enough, was never surprising. Fire's been around for millions of years. I mean, of course, they had fire. It it just was. I had talked our entire team out of the that the evidence for fire was going to be easy to see when it was right in front of us the entire time. So you know, that's my fault. Uh, But (laughs) but um, you know, the symbols are, are, are are a different level of stuff. But all that in combination is the book, and it became a journey. And the book became very we, – we trashed the first version of the book and then it became very easy to write. And I actually wrote it very, very quickly um, because it was a narrative journey of, of a very deeply personal experience with the discovery of the species, discovery of the culture around the species. And, and in the end, it gave me the chance to explore – Meaning and a very in a very open way and and discuss some of these concepts of human exceptionalism and and where I think this field is going
1: awesome well the the documentary kicks off with with a with a great sense of mystery and i and I also have to say like the the book just really like literally throws you right into the cave uh, there you are in the cave it has a very i think sometimes people might some listeners might be hesitant to pick up a book about this topic, but, but I mean, really this one just throws you right into the cave. It has a very riveting beginning and just doesn't let go for the entire length.
4: Oh, thank you for saying so. I mean, it's, as I said, it's, um, it's been a very personal journey for me. It's, uh, and, and I think that, that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of meaning in Homo Naledi and a lot of good that, that humans as individuals can take out from understanding that, that, there have been other species with complex cultures. This thing that we're living right now, it's neither the first, nor is it some sort of God-given right to be because it's happened before. And and I think that's an important message. You know, the idea that, you know, because I think that anyone who looks around the planet understands that the idea of human exceptionalism is part of why we do so much damage to this place. Mm. We, we think we own it. Um, and and we think it was given to us. And by learning that there have been other experiments in this, uh, you know, maybe we should step off of that high horse or stool or whatever <laughs> and, and step down a little bit as we kind of are at this critical moment in human history where literally the balance of life on this planet is at stake because of us
1: all right well we have we have the book we have the documentary uh we have the additional books where where else can listeners go to learn more and or follow your work
4: right so you can you can follow me on twitter at liar burger i'm i'm also on facebook at, at prof lee burger um and i'm if you follow national geographic you know i'm uh, we're we're there a lot a lot of presence uh in that space and there's going to be more uh, so, you know, the, and there are the older writings, you know, it, it's quite fun if you go back and read Skull in the Rock, Almost Human, and then this chapter, because it's kind of a narrative of of the history of this science and even further back, Footsteps of Eve, which was in the 1990s, where you can actually kind of understand the evolution of this whole science over the last uh, uh, 30 plus years that, that uh, at least from my perspective, um, uh, that I've experienced it in, you know, what? has got to be the greatest age of exploration we're living through right now.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you once more for coming on the show, talking about uh, your work, the book, the documentary. Um, It's been a pleasure.
4: Uh, It's great to be here.
1: Thanks again to Lee Berger for coming on the show here. The book again is Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. And it's out now in physical, digital, and audio formats. The documentary Unknown Cave of Bones is currently streaming on Netflix. Thanks, as always, to the excellent J.J. Posway for producing the show. And if you want to reach out to us, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows hey sarah i love that spring break vlog you posted on zigazoo omg you watched it yeah it was so cool